beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, next week, the Lord willing, we will celebrate Good Friday. That's what we do every year. We're used to that. We're used to remembering the sufferings and death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and have become quite familiar with all the stories concerning his death and suffering. And so is there anything new that I'm going to be able to tell you this afternoon? It's always a challenge for a minister. I don't very much that I can. You've heard it all before. And that's somewhat of a problem. Not in the first place for me. As Paul says to the Philippians in chapter 3, verse 1, it is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. But there is a danger in it for all of us. As the saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. For with familiarity comes automatism, taking a lot of things for granted. For example, when you drive the same route to work every day, you hardly know exactly anymore how you got to your destination. If someone were to ask you exactly what road you take and where you turn exactly and the names of the streets that you drive on, you will likely not be able to tell them. The route is so familiar to you that you no longer stand still by the details. They're not really important. They were important the first time you had to drive that route, but that's not the case any longer. You know how to get to your destination. You got used to the route. That's what we're like. We easily get used to things, also to unpleasant things. Isn't that true? Even pain. For example, when you have a chronic health concern, you find ways around it. You learn to cope. We are able to get over a lot of things through the Lord who strengthens us. We also get used to things that we shouldn't get used to. We get used to our own sinful habits and the sins of others. We get used to so many things. The problem is that this can also be the way with regard to the suffering and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're used to it. The details don't really register with us anymore. And so the cross may lose some of its meaning. In this way, over the years, the cross may have become a familiar symbol of the Christian religion. And you see that all around you, too. You see it widely portrayed everywhere. You see it as a grave marker, as a fine gold piece of jewelry hanging around someone's neck, as a neatly varnished piece of wood on the wall, or as a decal on the car. The cross has in this way become an icon, an idol even, and we're used to it. But, that, but what does the cross really mean? What does it stand for? That's what I want to preach to you about this afternoon. It's about the significance of the cross. And then we will see that it signifies three things. It signifies in the first place suffering, in the second place death, and in the final place atonement. 
First, Anna, it signifies suffering. In reality, the cross is a hideous instrument in the hands of its tormentors. It's one of the most brutal instruments of death ever conceived by the cruel mind of man. From all accounts, death by crucifixion was a very painful death. The spikes were driven through those parts of the hands and the feet that were the most sensitive. We, are, we know quite a bit from antiquity how crucifixion was done, but we're not sure exactly the details of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, but the following description will be very close to the mark. Three soldiers will have been needed in order to crucify him. On each side of him, a soldier held one of Jesus' hands secured and flat against the crossbeam. The third soldier who held two square-cut iron nails in one head and a heavy iron mallet in the other. He kneeled before each hand of the Lord Jesus, and with his fingers he probed our Lord's wrist to find a hollow just beneath the thumb bone. I don't know anything about anatomy, but I read somewhere that this is the place where the median nerve passes through the wrist and up to the forearm and all the way to the spinal cord. When this nerve is pierced, it sends unimaginable pain shooting up the entire arm and through the shoulder. Soldiers pierced it. Soldiers then moved to the other side and pierced his other hand, and with Jesus secure, they moved to his feet. The soldiers would bend his knees at a 45-degree angle so that they could place his feet flat against the vertical beam. And then they kneeled the feet one at a time, side by side. At that point, the cross was hoisted into place, elevated and dropped into the pre-dug hole. And Jesus' beaten body and nailed body was dropped two or three feet as the cross was jarred into place. As he hung on the cross, the weight of his body will have caused him to slowly suffocate as his lungs filled with air, but he would have been unable to breathe, to exhale. The only way he could, he could even exhale enough to speak was to lift himself up with his full weight of his body on his nailed feet. He would have to painfully lift him up himself up by pressing downward on the nails in his feet to exhale enough to say the words on the cross, such as the one that we just read in Matthew, Eli, Eli, Lema Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he hung on the cross, the Lord Jesus was suspended between heaven and earth, signifying that both man and God have forsaken him. Heaven didn't want him. Earth didn't want him. 
he was totally forsaken. The physical agony for the Lord Jesus was enormous. As I said, the cross was a crude instrument of torture. We may not minimize it. We may not in any way take for granted the great physical pain that he suffered on the cross. We have to see the horror of it. But, brothers and sisters, that was not the real suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was something much worse. And there was something that we cannot even begin to imagine. His real suffering as such was not the cross, but the curse. The curse of God. For do you know what that curse of God entails? God's curse comes upon you when he leaves you to wallow in your sin. When he allows you to remain in your sin so that it will totally and utterly destroy you. You see, the curse of God is not just punishment. Punishment is different from the curse. You receive punishment in order to set things right. Punishment is designed to teach you a lesson or to teach others a lesson. A child, for example, receives punishment when he gives his parents a big mouth. His parents could ground him or her for example, or take away certain privileges, that's punishment. You also receive punishment when you get drunkenly behind the wheel of a car and you kill or seriously hurt someone. You could be heavily fined and have your license taken away or even thrown into jail. In our Western world, corporal punishment is frowned upon but we know that all kinds of cruel punishments are meted out by less so-called civilized societies. In a Muslim country, if you steal a loaf of bread, they might cut off your hand. These are all punishments. But a curse you receive and your transgressions of the law completely destroy you. When the penalty for your sin bring no reprieve, no closure, when no matter what you do or what is done to you doesn't matter. To be cursed means to stand condemned forever and to be entirely demolished, demolished for your misdeed. It means that whatever evil you chose to do is now your choice forever. No escape. And that's what Paul also speaks about in Galatians 3. He says that those who rely on observing the law are under a curse. In other words, he is referring to those who think that they, by keeping the law, can remove the curse, that they can receive salvation. To those who think that by their obedience they can approach God and say to him, my works are good enough to be acceptable in your sight, O God, my good works have placed me in a position where I can claim the right to be accepted by you as an innocent person. I claim perfection for myself. Well, says Paul, such a person that says that is under a curse. For if that is what you think, then God will condemn you to a, to a life of keeping his law to perfection. And that's something you and I can't do. 
you will perish trying. You will come to a terrible end. Let me illustrate how this works and why such a lot is deserved. Suppose some billionaire developer gives you a million dollars to build him a house. And those are just your wages. And then he gives you all the equipment and all the material necessary in order to make this happen. He also gives you the land on which to build. But now, instead of getting busy building that house, you gamble the money away. Because of your gambling debts, you also sell all the material and the property. And then this billionaire developer comes along and he says to you, where's my house that you were supposed to build? How come you haven't built it? Where's all the material? What happened to my property? And then you tell him that you don't have it anymore. You have gambled everything away. You can't do it anymore. And you ask him for mercy. And then the billionaire says to you, well, that's now your problem. You are still obligated to build me that house, and I will hound you until you do. I'm going to put a guard in place to make sure that you work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You are not allowed to rest or to refresh yourself or to eat or, eat or sleep until you have done what you are supposed to have done in the first place. Now, what do you think is going to happen to such a wicked person? You think he's going to survive? No, he will perish, he will die. For now he is before an impossible task, and it's his own fault. He, has only, he only has himself to blame. You see, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, that's what a curse is all about. And that is the curse of God upon mankind, upon you and me. The curse is not just a punishment. It is to stand totally condemned and unable to do anything about it yourself. And now the cross points us to the curse. For that is what the catechism means when it says that the crucifixion of Christ assures us that he took upon himself the curse which lay on us. He was the only one who was able to keep the law of God to do what we should have done in the first place. And he did that. He kept God's law both actively and passively. Okay, that's theological language, you may say. Well, let me make it plain and simple. The active obedience of Christ was that he alone kept the law of God perfectly. After the fall into sin, there was never a person on earth who was able to do that. And he was able to do it. Even in the midst of people who sin all the time, for as the Catechism says, he suffered all the time while he lived on earth. He suffered hellish agony. And that is what his descent into hell also refers to. It refers to his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony which he endured throughout all his sufferings, but especially on the cross. Christ went to hell 
while he was still on earth. And in the midst of all, he remained obedient. He did not curse God. He did not curse man. And in the meantime, he remained full of love for his Father in heaven and for you and for me. That was his act of obedience. And that, brothers and sisters, is what sets the Christian faith apart from all other religions. A Christian expresses love in the midst of suffering. He expresses love in the midst of people who hurt him and who treat him wrongly. He expresses, he expresses love especially to those in the household of faith, brothers and sisters. And a Christian can do that only because of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is only because of the love that he showed on the cross that he is able to bear injustices and hardships and all kinds of suffering that he might have to endure on this present earth. Of course, we don't do that perfectly, but we know what God requires from us, and we have a beginning of that obedience that God requires from us. Christ was also passively obedient. What does that mean? Well, brothers and sisters, that is the greatest miracle of the true faith of the Christian religion. Christ was able to keep the law for himself perfectly. And because he was able, the keeping of the law was not a curse for him, for he could do it. And yet he took the curse that we deserve upon himself. He allowed himself to be condemned by God. That's his passive obedience. And that is the great miracle of the Christian religion and the wonderful gospel of salvation. He passively bore the curse of God throughout his whole time that he lived on earth, but especially on the cross. You know what that means? That means that we are now no longer condemned to a life of having to be perfect. We are no longer required to do the impossible, for we can't. We would perish. We no longer have the ability. We no longer have the tools. The Lord Jesus has done it all for us. Through faith, we may share in his obedience. He took the curse upon himself so that we can be free to serve God and our fellow man so that we can enjoy God's wonderful gifts. But why then did Jesus still have to die? For the curse of God was visited upon him while he was still on the cross, wasn't it? Wasn't that enough? Well, he also had to die because death was part of that curse. Death is the result of our inability to keep God's laws. Our flesh is sinful. Our flesh makes us sin all the time. And that sin had to be nailed on the cross with him. Lord's Day 16 speaks about the fact that the justice and truth of God demands it. For that is the only way that God would be satisfied. Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. That was part of the curse visited upon man when he sinned. 
Question 41 asks why he was buried. The answer is that it is to prove that he really died. Actually, it was the spear that was put into the side of the Lord Jesus and the water and blood that came out that proved in the first place that he had really died. It is important that we confess the actual and real death of our Lord Jesus. For if he hadn't died, then the matter of the payment for our sins would have remained incomplete. Death is the result of sin. It is the penalty for sin. That is why he still had to die. And brothers and sisters, I do not have to tell you, especially those who have buried loved ones, death is a very hard thing to deal with. It's painful. It separates us from one another. It breaks the fellowship with those whom we love. It is a painful thing to see the body of a loved one going down into the grave. It is a painful thing to see those whom we love rendered helpless and lifeless. Whereas before they walked and talked and communicated, now they are lifeless. The body has to be picked up and carried to the grave. But now remember, the same thing happened to the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. They took him from the cross. They carried him to the grave. He could no longer walk. He could no longer communicate. He was rendered totally lifeless, helpless. And he was put in the grave where his body began to decompose. But now remember what happened. Christ did not remain in the grave. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He was given a perfect body, which would never again see the ravages of sin. He was given a body which would never again know illness or disease or death. That is why Christ came to earth. That is why we celebrate Christmas and Good Friday and Easter. We celebrate his incarnation, his becoming flesh, because by him taking on our human nature as he did at his birth, our sinful human nature could be redeemed. He was born in the flesh so that he, the Son of God, could experience death on your behalf, on my behalf. Answer 37 speaks about Christ's atoning sacrifice. In the Latin edition of the Heidelberg Catechism, it speaks about the expiatory sacrifice. Also the word propitiation or propitiating sacrifice could be used. These are big words. Let me explain. They are all very rich adjectives to describe what the sacrifice of Christ really was all about, what the cross was all about. And the different adjectives emphasize the different aspects of the one sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. These words go all the way back to the cover on the ark in the Holy of Holies in the temple of God. Once a year, the high priest would go into the temple and he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrificial animal on the cover of the ark. And that blood symbolized the penalty and the curse on the sin of the people. Why did it have to happen? Because God had to be placated, pacified, appeased. We had 
done wrong and that wrong had to be made right. And that is where the word propitiation comes in. Propitiation carries the basic idea of appeasement or satisfaction, especially toward God. Propitiation is a two-part act that involves appeasing the wrath of an offended person and being reconciled to him. For you see, God also had to be expiated. Expiation has to do with making amends or making reparation. The reparation has to do, because of the penalty, has, has to do with the penalty that we must bear because of our sin. The penalty of sin had to be paid for. And that could only be done through death. In the Old Testament, the sacrifice and the death of the animal pointed to the one and only sacrifice of God. Mankind had to be reconciled to God because of his sin. And only the blood of Jesus could do that. That blood pointed to the sacrifice of the one man, Jesus Christ. And that's how we come to the English word atonement. Atonement refers to a setting at one. It all comes together in the one man, Jesus Christ. The word atonement was coined in order to get an understanding of what the sacrifice of Christ is all about. The only sacrifice acceptable to God was the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. And that sacrifice that Christ made on the cross ensured that everything was well again between God and his people. And so you see the great and wonderful meaning of the cross. Language can't really express it. When you think of the cross, you have to think of all these things, expiation, propitiation, appeasement, reconciliation. Think what that means for you and for me. Answer 43 gives us the wonderful benefits of the cross. It speaks there about the death of our old nature and the resultant life of thankfulness. It says that our old nature has been put to death and buried with the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that mean that you will no longer sin? Of course not. Does it mean that now you're perfect all the time? No. We still sin all the time. But listen to what it says here. It says that our old nature has been put to death in Christ. That's the wonderful gospel of salvation. For that means that even though we do sin all the time, we may have the forgiveness of sins time and again because of what happened on the cross. That's what we remember this morning at the Lord's Supper. The curse of having to be perfect in our conduct, even though we are totally incapable, has been removed from us. And so once again, we can be at peace. We can be at peace with God. All is well with my soul. And the other thing that we may now offer ourselves is that we may now offer ourselves as a sacrifice of thankfulness to him. Brothers and sisters, do we ever have something to be thankful for, don't we? The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ points to a reconciliation with our Father in heaven 
and he suffered horribly in order to make that all happen. And so be thankful. Live thankful lives. Be truly thankful for the cross and all that it stands for. Amen.